0: welcome to the body wisdom podcast i'm your host kiara you can expect new episodes each wednesday that are educational inspiring and honest surrounding various women's health topics spirituality and so much more the body wisdom podcast was brought to life by integrating the physical and emotional body to deepen one's healing journey thanks for being here and enjoy the show Hello, Stephanie. Welcome to the Body Wisdom Podcast. How are you today?
1: I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I just love everything that you speak of on Instagram. I was like, I got to reach out to her. Like, please come on and share your wisdom with us. Um. So I want to, before we get into the juicy parts, I wanted to just learn a little bit more about you. Like what? led you to this space and how like what got you into somatics Mm,
1: yes you know so much of what i teach in this field is what has worked for me my journey to finding somatics really came from my own struggle with my mental health my own challenges of um being confused why i could know what was happening and know the self-sabotaging cycles, but still feel like I was trapped by them, stuck by them, couldn't get out of it. And the body for me really was the missing piece. I had gone to talk therapy for quite a long time um, by the time I found somatic practices. And uh, when I started working with a somatic facilitator, it was, it was this light bulb click feeling, you know, that epiphany moment where you're like, oh, this is it. And it was just this huge flood of like, how how did I not know? How how could I have gone so long not knowing that my body, this, you know, this vessel that's been carrying me around the entire time was participating, was communicating. Um, And it, I think also, you know, was like a light bulb click, not just for my brain, but also in my body, there was a feeling of, oh, this is
0: it. Yeah. It's like a a coming home, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Well said. (laughs) There's a tangible feeling to that. And I think that's what so much, um, so many of us are looking for in our healing journeys is how to find home is, uh, you know, is it a remembering experience? Is it a discovering experience, but Mm -hmm. there, you know, there can be this elusiveness to it. it. It can kind of, You know, slip through our fingers so many times. It can be so hard to find that. And for me, you know, the somatic, the body piece, was the tool, and I found is the tool for a lot of people because we all have a body. We all are
0: moving through the world with one.
1: So why not learn how to move with it?
0: I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So, kind of backing it up a few steps for those who don't know what somatics. Even is like, could you explain that a little bit more?
1: Absolutely. So, what I teach and practice, uh, I call somatic healing, mm-hmm. and this is based in somatic psychology, which is the blend of psychology, understanding our inner workings, why we work the way we do, from um, you know an emotional and mental health standpoint blended with the soma, which is body. Your soma is body in Latin. And so somatic is the way that your psychology and your body actually connect the bridge between the two. Mm. So we can look at some really cool science-y things like neuroscience and anatomy and the nervous system and your immune system and all of these natural functioning parts of your being and see the way that those are interacting with your mental health, that those are actually participating in your experience of emotional range as you walk through life. So Mm -hmm. when we can use this lens, we gain different verbiage and um, tangibility to kind of take hold of our experience again, in this way that really connects the, the brain and the body, the mind and the soul to navigate through the world as a more um, embodied individual. Yeah.
0: That's beautiful. So well said. So I work with a lot of women who struggle with chronic illness or just chronic symptoms, or even women who experience anxiety, um, and the last place that they want to be is, is in their bodies. So I don't know if you've come across this and like, where would one even start with that? Absolutely. I
1: think the, field of somatics really calls to people who have never felt safe in their body who've actually felt their body um is the enemy at times actually my body is the thing that's hurting me and the complexity in the relationship that that can create with oneself so the way we would look at this from somatic from a somatic perspective is to first start by personifying the body If the body is a subjective participant in our life, rather than objective, your body has an opinion. It's actually been impacted just like you have around the life experiences you've gone through, the experiences of uh, eating disorder, IBS, uh, food allergies, all of those things. Your body is experiencing that with you. Mm -hmm. And we want to get really curious, what has it been like for your body to be in such pain, to... Be in such turmoil around something as you know simple and functional and survival as eating, as food. What has it been like for your body to constantly be in that process? And a lot of times it can feel like a silly question because there's this feeling of, well, I haven't liked it. So of course my body hasn't enjoyed it either. Mm. But that that's actually exactly the direction we want to go. Yeah. Your body hasn't liked it either. That's right. You both have been in discomfort. So can there be this conversation of togetherness, of listening to one another to create the kind of back and forth conversation that we would have with our friends or people we'll feel safe with of the listening process, of the witnessing that we offer to other people? Can we practice that with our bodies? Mm -hmm. And in that way, then start to, Dig underneath to hear what is it you need to feel 1% safer, 1% more held, seen, supported. Mm-hmm. And that this is really the, the weaving that we start to do when the body is sitting at the table in the conversation with us, rather than the modality that is the pain source or just the thing that processes food for us or just this functional component of our lives when the body is another individual that sits at the table with us there's a whole range of getting to know it questions that come up that we would never ask if it was just the you know functioning machine that was <laughs> going through processes yes.
0: i love that you said that because being in the nutrition space i have And just my own personal journey, I started off in the fitness industry and just viewed my body as this machine. And I was just like, all right, give it this, give it that. Then it performs this way. And that's, and, and food as fuel. And like, that was all it was to me. And then meeting my body with acceptance and even neutrality, even because I struggled with body image as well. And it was really hard for me to just love my body. As they say, just love yourself. Right. It's, it seems so easy, but sometimes there's like, there's so many layers as you were saying, like underneath that. So.
1: Absolutely. And I think you're speaking to this, you know, really pivotal shift that we make in the relationship with our body. We can be having a healthy relationship, taking care of it, exercising, eating well, mm-hmm. but it, it really is a different kind of um, intimacy. I want to call it to be asking these curiosity questions. Do you like these things? Can you tell me what you like about them? What things do you not like? And those have so much more nuance in them than just, you know, when I run, my body feels good. Like that's great what kind of good? And where did your body learn this kind of good? Has your body felt this kind of good anywhere else? And these deepening questions really are where we see the body um, memory coming onto the scene, the capacity that your body has to fill you in on what's actually happening in there. We see, it's almost like that that movie inside out that Pixar brought out a couple of years ago where they start with those core emotions, but it really was this, you know, personifying of all the things that are happening internally with your emotions. They're having conversations with each other. They're going on adventures. They're having, you know, ruptures and repairs and all those things. That is actually a beautiful way to see what is happening in the body. We can look at it you know, from this simple perspective, the external, it walks, it talks, it eats, it digests, but there's so much richness in there. If, you know, we're willing to learn how to listen for that.
0: And, and taking that approach of being curious too, that was so pivotal. just like, hmm, instead of like daggering at the body, almost like, I don't know with this, this, I don't know, like unkind messaging. It's more of like this, like hmm, you know, curiosity that makes it so much more gentle and so much more loving. Um, yeah, so absolutely. I think that like changed everything for me. It's just getting curious with it.
1: Yeah. absolutely. The curiosity is is the turning point where we start to um, kind of reclaim our own empowerment. If we can't question the stories in our head, then we are perpetually a victim of that story. When we can say, is this story my truth? That takes courage to question that story because oftentimes those stories have been told to us over and over in our own heads, but also you know, interpreted from and uh, extracted from our experiences in the world around us. And so to question that story in a way is to question our sense of identity, our sense of internal structure. And that's a scary thing to do, to you know, question the, the structure of the home that you live in. But when we question it, we get to rebuild that home. We get to decide if these pillars are actually supporting us
0: to grow in the direction that we want to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of that feels familiar. So therefore it feels safe to just not have to question those things, right? Absolutely. The
1: safety. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're animals in, these, in this core fundamental way of survival and the unknown is inherently dangerous because there's variables that we don't know about it and so we stay with what's known because it feels safe we know what to expect
0: yeah so how do we decipher the difference between discomfort or like actual like true danger and I because there's this movement or there was this movement of like stepping out of your comfort zone and like that's where all the change happens like how do you feel about all that
1: yeah I think it's like most of the um, new age movements for you know emotional and mental health I want to say there's some incredible incredible wisdom to these practices and beliefs and there's some you know shadow sides there's these sections that maybe don't resonate for everyone that potentially um, recapitulate discomfort or trauma for people even you know this this example of, step outside your comfort zone. Sure. We want to step outside of our comfort zone to grow, but also isn't that a risk and putting yourself in danger at times to mm-hmm. step outside of what you're comfortable with, to step into the unknown. There can be experiences that harm us in that way. Yeah. When we are outside of our safety window. So the way I actually like to help my clients understand why we step out of our comfort zone is not to say that we only step out and we don't ever step back in mm-hmm. it's actually really important that we do you know a testing of the waters we you know don't want to throw somebody into the deep end of the pool without explaining to them how to swim much less helping them learn how to blow bubbles or kick or float and stepping out of your comfort zone and staying outside of your comfort zone can be like launching into the deep end of the pool without any sort of understanding of what that's going to be like. A, a step out and a step back in would be more like, you know, one foot into the water and then one foot back out. Okay. You're okay. That went all right. Okay, good. Let's walk down the steps of the pool. Can we stand waist deep in this water? How does that feel? Are we okay here? Okay. This is new. The water's cold, but I'm okay. Great. Great. Let's do some little more steps. And that step by step piece actually is what we call titrating. You're titrating in and then out. And what that does is teach your body that you can come back to your safe zone if something feels like too much. And often in experiences of trauma, the experience of too much has lasted for too long, which is why it stays with us and it impacts us for that long period of time afterwards. So if we're going to ask our body and ourselves to go through something that may be too much again, we need, we need to be able to regulate back in to our safe zone, into our window of tolerance and the window of tolerance, you know, in our nervous system is not necessarily your comfort zone, but rather your tolerable zone. Mm -hmm. So you can be uncomfortable, but not be in an experience of intolerable pain. You know, and that's where we want to kind of expand this idea of the comfort zone into a little more of like a nuanced conversation. There's, you know, it's not the black and the white, either you're out in the zone or you're in the zone. There's actually this gray area that we want to build so that you have the capacity and the choice to decide how do I step out and how do I step back in? How do I need to do that when I need support, something feels overwhelming, And how can I challenge myself? Okay. What does this place feel like? What is it like to put your face in the water to blow bubbles? Mm. And, and from that place, we can kind of weave in this comfort zone concept, not only into our daily
0: lives, but into our trauma healing processes. Mm, Love that. So what would be some self-regulation tools to step in and out of, or I guess coming back to that window of tolerance? Mm -hmm,
1: Absolutely. So the somatic approach really teaches that we wanna meet the body from a body up perspective. So much of the uh, cognitive tools that we learn like um, journaling or uh, talking to a therapist are brain first, body second. We wanna actually start with body first, brain second. So <laughs> what you know that requires is a little bit of trust because sometimes your brain will say, what are we doing right now? <laughs> but <laughs> your brain doesn't need to understand what's happening as long as your body is feeling the thing. That's that's what we want to focus more on. So something that contacts your body's regulatory system is is the base of the tools we want to use. So your vagus nerve, your 12th cranial nerve that sits right at the base of your skull at the top of your spine is a regulatory nerve in particular, that one is what turns on when your body is starting to come down into this, like, Oh, I'm okay. Relaxing state. And some of the things we know that turn that nerve on to activate what's called the ventral vagal theory is a contemplative activity, something that requires awareness and presence. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that awareness and presence is really about the sensory ability that you have to feel all of the little pieces. So something like meditation, where you are really feeling this moment, focusing on this breath, but it can also be something really simple like washing dishes contemplatively. Can you feel Mm. the warm water? Can you smell the soap? Can you hear the running water? All of those, hear the water, feel the water, smell the soap. All of those are your senses online. Mm -hmm. And when we use that sensory contemplative ability to regulate our nervous system, we start to almost like hack our body's natural ability to take care of itself. And we learn how to turn that switch on manually rather than waiting for the body to turn it on all all on its own. So contemplative activities with that sensory awareness, breath. Is another one we know turns on the vagus nerve, and in particular, a belly breath. You know, so often we breathe into the top of our chest when we're anxious, but when we watch um, like a, a little kid breathe when they're sleeping during nap time, you see that little belly rise and fall. And that's what we wanna do with our body. We wanna have the belly rise and fall. And so breathing into the belly in that way, you know, can seem like something really simple, but a lot of times we have to actively retrain our bodies. To breathe into the belly because we've been breathing up high for so long. So, breathing into the belly, doing it contemplatively. And then also activating a left right rock, like a sway mm-hmm. from left to right, is another way that we can tune into that regulation system, that slow down, that contemplative experience. Think about, you know, when we hold a baby who's crying, we rock, mm-hmm. we sway, sometimes we bounce, there's a movement there. and we can use those same movements because those are things that soothe children because there's something about that left to right that says oh I'm okay
0: Mm -hmm. oh my gosh (laughs) I'm sitting here like doing my belly breaths (laughs) it feels so good I remember when I back in 2016 I was like cutting my hand, I, I was starting to learn about breath and I was like, oh my gosh, am I even breathing? Like it just did, did not feel like I was even breathing. So that deep belly breathing like changed everything. And it's so interesting that you bring up the sensory awareness. Like I do this a lot when I'm in the kitchen and when my mind could be running a million miles per hour. And it's like, it could be so easy to just zoom through and make a meal and, and eat it really fast. And that is definitely the way I lived for like the majority of my life. And then I became a nutritionist and I just started slowing down. This activates like the brain, which is the first piece of digestion to release the salivary enzymes, like cooking your food and smelling your food and just like dropping into the to how the knife sounds on the cutting board. It's it's so therapeutic. And I've recorded myself on Instagram stories before, like doing all those things without music, just like those sounds. And I've gotten messages from people like, ah, this is so therapeutic. Just like hearing those sounds and and just watching, um, and connecting with those, those small precious moments that are so mundane, but they're everything. (laughs) So yeah, all of that is wonderful.
1: Yeah. It does really take us back to the like simple joys in a way Mm -hmm. that, you know, you have to be moving slow to hear those. You have to be, you know, intentionally listening for them to catch those. And it, it requires a desire to learn how to do that because we don't live in a culture, you know, in the Western world, anyhow, that, that sees slowness as a, um, a valuable trait. It yeah. actually, you know, we live in a culture that really encourages speed and hyper productivity and, you know, mass turnout and high profits rather than um, the presence and the slowness that's required for this kind of experiential work to connect.
0: Yeah, we've, we've definitely become so far removed from that way of living and being. Um, and, and to that, I'll add that. What if a lot of people don't feel safe like slowing down? Like I I hear this a lot. Like just slow down. Just just slow down. And for me, that was really hard because I was, you know, the environment in which I grew up in, like there was a lot of fast moving parts and there was chaos. Like, um, so that but I love what you said. It it took a desire to want to slow down in the first place to really getting there.
1: Yeah. And it, you know, it does pair with what we understand about, you know, trauma in the body. So I had worked with a group quite a few years back where we had talked about the ways in which something really simple for some folks can actually be really activating for folks who've experienced trauma. And one of the examples was at the end of a yoga class, when you lay down for Shavasana and the teacher dims the lights and everyone closes their eyes, someone had shared, actually that was when I experienced the trauma. That's when trauma happened to me, was at night laying down with my eyes closed. (sighs) and wow. how unaware other people in that class were about something so simple and small as that, impacting someone. I mean, you know, you're, if that was what your body learned as the danger, then anytime anything remotely close to that came up, your body is going to reignite all of the old alarm systems. Your body doesn't say, is this exactly what happened? It says, this is close enough. And so when we talk about slowing down, it's really important that we be aware that slowing down actually can be when trauma happened, when I was going slow, when I wasn't moving, trauma happened, but also from like a survival point of view, like think about, you know, living in the wilderness, being chased by lions, about to be eaten, like just slow down like no <laughs> i will die and this this is what i hear from clients when i'm you know helping them wrangle with this concept of like how do i slow down is when we tap into it sometimes the idea of slowing down in our body can register as if i slow down i feel like i'm going to die yeah And that is so real of an experience that is so valid for your body to be sending that message, because I'm sure that at some point in your life, that, that was how it felt that if you slowed down at that point, it would have felt like you were dying. You could have been in legitimate danger. Mm
0: -hmm. That's
1: real. That's true. Mm -hmm. And this is where we, we see kind of the, the tug of war with the brain and the body sometimes because statements like, it feels like I'm going to die. We know that now as an adult, you're not actually going to die from slowing down. And that's what the brain says. The brain says, logically, this doesn't make sense. And this is where, again, we're not coming from a top-down process. We're coming from a bottom-up. So I don't I don't actually put that much weight in what your brain is saying about how that's not true. Your body is telling me that's true. And that's really all that matters. Mm-hmm. And that kind of validation for the body actually is what eventually helps us start to slow down because we're not invalidating how scary and overwhelming that is. We're actually really recognizing and honoring the bigness in the feeling that comes up when you try to slow down. And when we can validate it, then we can become friends with it. And if we're friends with it, we can get it what it needs. We can create an environment and a safe container where slowing down just 1% maybe isn't as scary. And here's the pool example again. When we say, go ahead, just slow down, we're launching people into the deep end. Mm -hmm. When we can help somebody understand why there's activation in their body about slowing down, slow down just 1% at a time, learn tools. To be able to safely come back to themselves when that slowness feels overwhelming, then we're taking it into the shallow end, one step into the water, one bit at a time, and that creates such a different precedent for the relationship with the body. I, I'm going to validate you. You are important. I want to hear what you're saying. Yeah, and yeah, that makes such an impact.
0: For sure, absolutely. I um, I don't know. I. <laughs> With slowing down it, I would, I would mentally tell myself, like, just slow down, just slow down. It's fine. It's fine. Just slow down. But it seems that coming to a place of acceptance with like, this is true. Like this fact is real and I'm validating you just creates a whole different experience with your body. And that's like, that seems like the first step of the process for, for this work.
1: Right. And it is. It is a tough step in itself because so many of us are coming to this work with the desire to get rid of something, get away from something, take it out. I don't want it, right? They're like, I want to be able to slow down. I don't want my body to respond in this way when I slow down. I don't like that my body responds in this way when I slow down, or even with you know nutrition and food, people's relationship with their body in that way. I don't like that my body can't eat whatever I want. I don't like that I struggle just gauging when I'm hungry and when I'm not. And actually, what that then tells us, you know, if we were to say that again, if the body was a person, if I had a friend and I was like, I hate that you're such a pain in the ass every time we go eat. I, it's so annoying that every time I want to go to a yoga class, like you have this huge fuss. I would never say that to a friend. Mm-hmm. And yet I say it to my body all the time. hmm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, and here is where like the, uh, the personifying comes in so strong. I want to take care of my friends. I love them. They're important to me. But it's so interesting that we don't have that same desire for care with our body. And we learn that. We learn that from our external environment as kids. Yeah. When we come, you know, onto earth as little beings, we've never been a human before. and <laughs> We're absorbing every piece of information we can get because we've never done this before. We're trying to learn as fast as possible. And so we're taking in every little tiny bit of information, including how the people around us take care of their body, treat themselves and how they respond to us in particular when we have a need. Mm -hmm. And that then gets internalized as, okay, this is how I am supposed to respond to myself. When I have a feeling, a need, a fear, all of that stems from like our original blueprint that we have as kids. Where did you learn that this was how you spoke to yourself, that this was how this goes? Mm-hmm. And that, ooh, that is <laughs> a scary thing to do. That's terrifying to find out, oh my gosh, I've been believing this for years, my whole life.
0: Yeah, it's like letting go of an identity almost. Like it's it feels like part yes. of you is like it's like a death almost.
1: Yeah, there's so much grief in this in this stage of the work. And you know, really brings us back to why choosing to get curious is scary and threatening to your body in some ways. Um, and oftentimes there's something that happens, there's an experience where you go, okay, you know what? I don't want to be in this kind of pain anymore. Enough is enough. And that is, you know, more common for folks to experience when that, you know, <laughs> more common of an experience to propel them towards this work rather than like sure. they love themselves. They're doing <laughs> the thing and they're like, I'd love to just deepen the relationship. Like, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, it's, it's a part of the process to have to go through pain to realize yeah. I'd like to change
0: this. I couldn't agree more. I think some of my biggest nervous breakdowns have led me to more expansion and more growth and just a deepening within my own healing. I like to call it like this whole life, just like a healing journey or just a journey of it in and of itself. And it's a forever long, it's a lifelong practice. So yeah, that this work is so important to me and to so many of my clients, I hope they find this and it's helpful, but I wanted to talk about anxiety in particular, because I feel like today in today's world, we're just seeing an epidemic of, of mental health crises and, and anxiety in particular, and people are so unsure of as to why this is happening to them and they feel like at a loss with their anxiety. And I just wanted to touch on that. Is that something that you personally struggled with?
1: Oh, absolutely. I am a human in this human world and there's (laughs) it's hard to escape the experience of anxiety. That's so prevalent.
0: I say that because I was speaking to one of my clients, um, not my clients, one of my, um, partners inside of this program that I'm in. And she's 60 years old. And I think it's so awesome that she's becoming a breathwork facilitator, like, like myself. And she said for the first time in her life, she experienced anxiety like last week. And I was like, what in your 60 years of life? You've never experienced it. That's amazing. But yeah. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, it is, you know, it is tricky because everyone has their own personal definition of what anxiety is, what anxiety feels like. And, uh, that the idea that you know everyone has anxiety now i would actually question everyone has always had anxiety anxiety is just a variation of stress and survival is stressful mm-hmm. and you know the anxiety that we're seeing more now is i think the byproduct of living in stress and survival for so long through so many generations and now that we are um You know, potentially in circumstances where our survival is not as intense or imminent, I want to say. Like we can get jobs, we can get housing, we can go to a grocery store. And the anxiety and the stress levels are still so high. I think this is what you know we're seeing in folks now is the anxiety of why is my system still functioning like I'm in ride or die mode rather than like my needs are met. I'm okay. We're fine. And I feel like a broken record. In the end, it comes back to the body. Mm. What, what has your body learned about what is danger about what survival is? Because it's not just, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, which is this, you know, pyramid triangle that looks at human needs and kind of ranks them from bottom to top. And, In Maslow's hierarchy, he talks, he looks at how um, like food, shelter, and warmth are like some of our first core needs. Mm -hmm. But if that were true, then that would mean that folks who grow up in war-torn areas, low-income families, uh, you know, struggle with finding their next meal. That would mean that their experiences of emotions are never met emotional safety is never something they'll get to experience because the these other needs come first but actually when we've looked at the research over the years it's not that shape at all Mm. your emotional needs register the same if not more as your physical physiological like survival needs but culturally, generationally, there was no time in a way to do that. You know, if we look at history over the years, world wars, famine, great depression, there were literal needs to get food on the table to survive today. And so, yeah, the emotional caretaking got put aside because that takes time. We didn't have time. Now that we do have time, I think that's what we're seeing is people's systems are operating from this inherited place of, I'm not okay. I don't have time. I do need to be on edge. Because that was what was shown to us. That's what has been inherited. That's what's been taught. And when we look at something like epigenetics as well for like ancestral trauma, generational trauma, we can also see this line through the body as well. Just like, you know, your parents have brown eyes. And so you're more likely to have brown eyes. It's the Mm. same idea. If your mom struggled with anxiety, you're more likely to struggle with anxiety, not just because she's role modeling it, but because the energy in the home is going to have this gentle tone, however big or small, you know, depending on your family of origin. And also our life experiences are being registered in our body, not on, you know, one, collective scale of like, we all agree this thing, you know, this blue square is what anxiety looks like. Everyone's anxiety is registering in their system based on what their systems feel like is too much for too long or too little for not long enough. Yeah, It's not that if you and I grew up in the same household that we would come away with the exact same understanding and experiences. Actually, we see siblings having totally different you know, outcomes in their lifestyles, their experiences of anxiety, their experiences of, you know, mental health and however that shows up because there is no single marker for, okay, this thing is anxiety provoking. It's all about how your system reads it, how your body understands it.
0: Yeah. Mm, That really hit home for me. (laughs) That was uh, amazing. And does that like kind of bring into the equation the whole hyperarousal state and hypo state because i've seen my anxiety the sensations of anxiety play out as more of like a hyper arousal state where i've seen others more in that hypoarousal state and like a shutdown and dissociation and all of that so is that kind of like what we're playing around with there. Yeah.
1: Totally. Yeah. I love that. So these are like the fancy words for what we're experiencing, right? So hyper arousal is when our system is activated, your sympathetic is lifting, right? We can feel it in our body as like an energy. There's a, there's a movement, there's that jitter, and that can be exciting. Like Mm -hmm. when I'm excited, I do feel electric and alive, but when I'm anxious, I also feel electric, but like in a bad way. And so there are similar frequencies there. So hyper arousal is when we're outside of our window of tolerance, right? And that is about your window of tolerance. How wide or small that is, is just yours. There is not like one universal window that we're all starting with, and it is going to be unique to you. It is going to require you getting to know you. And again, here's the relationship with the body, right? (laughs) Um, And some of our Natural tendencies are going to be learned. If we grew up in a family that taught us when you have a feeling that's coming up, you shove that feeling down, we're going to probably see hypo arousal for those kinds of folks, you know, uh, feeling really heavy or tired, falling asleep, um, not being able to, you know, retain attention very well. Sound is going to be far away. Whereas hyper arousal, if that was how your family of origin was responding to when feelings came up, Everyone got anxious, everyone got tight. There was screaming, there was shouting, there was chaos, whatever it was. The presenting factors, the behavioral pieces are what your body is reading. And so that is then what your body learns to do as a human. When a feeling comes up, here's how I'm supposed to respond. And so as we get curious about that, as we you know, step into that scary place of questioning what's going on, we gain the choice and the efficacy to take care of ourselves so that we can widen our window of tolerance so that the next time that feeling comes up, it doesn't skyrocket us out of our window. We actually have worked to grow it. So it might not be comfortable, but again, it's not the window of comfort. <laughs> it's the window of tolerance, what you can tolerate.
0: Yeah. And is there an artificial window of tolerance? Uh Help me with what you mean by that. Well, I guess like... Some, someone who's in a state of hyperarousal and they're just like, oh, I just need to like calm down. And so what they do is, is go to the TV and just numb out and escape. Is, and that kind of brings them down to this window of tolerance. But I've heard of it being called like this artificial window of tolerance. And then there's like the true window of tolerance on either side: mm-hmm. hyper arousal or hypo arousal. I was just curious. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I haven't heard it, um, heard of an artificial window of tolerance because I might actually say that what we're doing in that moment is numbing out and avoiding rather than down regulating and taking care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. What that does in a way is, you know, uses the numbing as the regulatory technique, because the idea, you know, of numbing is there's no feeling. And so sure, if there's no feeling, you're no longer hyper aroused, but that probably, you know, tells me you're more dissociated than actually regulated. So I might say that your system actually is not coming back into your window of tolerance in that space. You're just taking all of these overwhelming feelings and putting them you know, in your backpack, hoping that your backpack seams don't split. <laughs> um, You know, and it is hard to have to take care of yourself. I think I wanna like note that here. You know, we talk about like, just use the tools and like here, let's understand how it works. It's effort to do this for yourself. It is work, just like having kids and taking care of them is work. Having a relationship and taking care of that is work. So, you know, we can, I know I can get really wrapped up in how like beautiful and amazing it is that we get to do this, but sometimes it doesn't feel like I get to do this. It feels like I have to do this. And that's real too.
0: Mm, I love that you said that because healing in and of itself can, can feel like a full-time job sometimes. And I like to say like, as an entrepreneur or a business owner, um, having, my line of work and then supporting my nervous system alongside of that feels like a full, like two full-time jobs. Um, so I get that. And, you know, I just would love to ask you like what you do on days, like when it feels like that, when you're just like, man, it's hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's real. And I definitely have those days. (sighs) I think, I think I just made a post about this recently. One of the things I do is just sit on the floor Mm is just sit down on the floor with my back against a wall with my legs flat on the ground and just be right there with whatever feeling is present whatever it is that's coming up and there are some days where that you know you don't have time to do that and so that is tough those ones are harder than others the days where i don't want to be with her i try and get curious about those Mm. What, what is here that you are working so hard to get away from? Mm. Because that actually, <laughs> that's actually the key to the deepest stuff. You know, when I have clients that, um, that use a lot of little mechanisms to steer us away from a, a question I've asked, you know, Hey, what's happening right here? What's going on? And they're like, oh yeah, that was weird. Hey, did I tell you? And start talking about something else. Or they're like, oh, you know what? I have to uh, to grab water. And then they physically get up, they leave. We do the same things with ourselves. When we're getting close to something that's big, we make ourselves busy. We tell ourselves we don't have time. We look for any excuse to to not sit down and do it. And I get really curious. "Mm, What's the fear? What are you afraid we're going to find there? And it's usually something like, I'm afraid it's going to be too big. I'm afraid if it's, if I open and start, it's never going to stop. And again, like that's real, Mm -hmm. that's legitimate of a feeling. Of course you feel that way. I'm sure there have been moments where it was too big,
0: where it did feel like it was never going to stop. Yeah. 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 Something that I've been um, working with on myself is, there's this busyness that I've, you know, creating safety for me was piling more and more onto my plate. And, um, I finally, like, instead of just telling myself, like, just do less, like, it's fine. (laughs) I got deeper with that. And I noticed that there was a fear of failing or a fear of like not being good enough. If I don't do all of these things, um, And so with that, would we just feel that fear? Or like, would we just be with that fear? Like what happens then? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So like what we would want to set up then is like, okay, I noticed today I, you know, made a schedule for myself that has a thousand things in it. (laughs) And as I'm looking at this, I feel simultaneously overwhelmed, but also like I couldn't not do this list, right? There's some of what we um, some of what we can get familiar with in anxiety. Like I can't not do this, but also I'm paralyzed to do it and it's overwhelming. Oh my gosh. Yes.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) So, so then there's a feeling of trapped. I have to, and I can't not, but I also, a part of me doesn't want to. So in that moment, the biggest tool that we can use is to pause because you noticed you notice those feelings, and that's really cool. Oh, okay. You saw you saw something. Tell me what you saw. Oh well, I saw that I panic made a list of a thousand things, but I also feel like I could throw up when I look at those things. Okay, so there's there's multiple things here. Okay. And can we stay with that for a second? Would that be okay? And the staying, the pausing and just the observing really gives us the capacity then to decide and bring our prefrontal cortex back online. When we're in a survival mode, when our fight and flight amygdala is activated, your prefrontal cortex turns off. So you're not operating from like a logical thinking through consequential place. You're just operating from survival mode. Yeah. And so to get that prefrontal cortex back online, we have to pause, we have to slow we have to stop for a second. Ooh. And then we have to kind of like look at the puzzle instead of just like panic, putting it together of like, oh, I got to get this done. Okay, well, hold on. Like, hold on. Let's, let's look at the puzzle. Let's see how many pieces we've got. What, what colors are here? What, what, what shape is, what shape are these puzzle pieces? Are there some corner pieces we can find maybe? And the getting curious, the asking the questions is really what allows us to, you know, pull that thread and, one of the, you know, common ones that I use with clients, you know, we've established, okay, there's two feelings. This is what's here, is just getting to know those. So the question is, can could that feeling tell me a little bit, tell me a little bit more, help me understand what's happening, where that's coming from? And you identified it right here. Oh, I pile things on my plate because I feel like if I don't, I'm not being productive. If I'm not being productive, then I'm not accomplishing. If I'm not accomplishing, then I'm, you know, not worthy. Yeah. Oh, okay. And we can trickle down all the way to the base there. Oh, there's a feeling if I don't do this, then I'm not enough. Wow, that must be really hard. And then there's the validating, there's the being with. Okay, so that's what's here. And tell me what else? Oh, there's the feeling of like, I'm frozen. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. Oh, don't tell me why that's happening. Oh, actually, because I don't like feeling like I'm not enough. I know that that that's what that's leading to. Oh, so it's really all coming back to the same core place. And that that's the part of ourselves we can practice being with, loving, taking care of, saying, Wow, what do you what do you need today? To feel to feel like this feeling was one percent less intense. Not mm-hmm. to get rid of it, not that we're gonna change it, but to be with it in a way where you can tolerate
0: it just one percent more. Mm, that makes so much sense. And sometimes there is this resistance that we have to pausing cuz there when i'm making those lists and i'm like okay I'll do this there's this part of me that's like oh wait like like what you're saying like there's there's both parts and it's like oh but you should like slow down you should you know just take a beat and then it's like nope we're just going to keep going you know there's there's both of those parts so it's like getting curious about the resistance then. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I would, you know, I would ask what's the resistance to slowing down. What would happen if you slowed down? Yeah. What would that mean? And I'm guessing what it would mean is that I'm not going to accomplish. I'm not going to be enough. And, and again, what you're identifying is that even though I can be saying, I should slow down, I know what I should be doing should can sometimes be like a shaming word that we use for ourselves yeah. rather than like an encouraging word. Like instead of it being like, Kara, you might want to slow down. Like, would that be okay today? It kind of does this like little finger point. That's like, you should be slowing down. You shouldn't be going so fast rather than like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm just noticing you're going really fast today. Can you help me understand why? Can you help me understand why we need to go so quickly today? And that curiosity, that you know, little shift into coming towards ourselves with curiosity instead of um the shaming it can really be some of that like little turn that makes such a difference. And I find that you're right, the pause is so so hard to do. When our survival brain is activated, when we're in fight, flight, freeze, pausing again, feels like we're going to die. If I pause, I will be eaten. I will die. And so it's also in the relational aspect, letting your body know, like, I'm here with you. Even if we go down right now, we're together. You're not alone. Yeah. And I, I think there's this like misconception in, you know, mental health that like, when you get to you know, the end, the magical end of like, oh, I'm cured. I'm better now,
0: (laughs) wherever that, wherever that place is,
1: um, that you won't have these feelings anymore that you like, won't, you'll be happy all the time. Like you'll be, you know, golden on a daily basis. Yeah. And it's actually not what this practice anyways teaches. I am not trying to get rid of Any part of your story, yeah, I understand there are parts of your story that like really bring up some like intense, painful, hard, hard experiences, hard feelings. And they're part of your puzzle. Mm -hmm. I don't wanna throw pieces of the puzzle away. I actually think if we can change the energy around these puzzle pieces, then they'll just fade right into the rest of the puzzle over time. won't be this, you know, huge wave every time because you you won't be drowning, you'll have a boat, your boat will get bigger. And then, you know, down the line, when a wave that's the same size as what you're dealing with today, that feels like huge and drowning and overwhelming, that one won't even register on your boat. It'll be just a little ripple because you've, you've built these tools that say, I'm here, I'm with you, and I can tolerate these experiences. And that what your inner child needs the most is not for you to get rid of those experiences, but for your inner child to know that they're not alone in that experience. I'm here with you. Is actually the thing that my clients over all of these years have been needing to hear from themselves the most.
0: Mm, So beautiful. Something that um, just echoing that when I was in the shower this morning, I um, was Thinking about going outside and, and dancing in the rain and I would have never done that years ago because like the rain was like, oh, you gotta run away like don't get wet and all those things. And, um, the emotions just remind me so much of the seasons and having a preference for an emotion over like, let's say happiness over like fear or pain, like just reminds me of like, it all gets to be here and, when I choose happiness um, and and to, like letting that be like a good emotion, whereas like pain and suffering are like bad emotions, like I don't want to experience that. And, and of course, like there's like, you know, the lighter emotions, but I think what has been really pivotal for me is just being with the pain and suffering and, and the grief and the shame and all of those things and not pushing them to the side and, and right, writing them off as like just negative emotions. Um, it all gets to be here. That was really, yeah. Yeah.
1: It does. And I love this idea of, you know, seeing the emotions in light and dark because, um, you know, as somebody that, you know, practices art as a, you know, expression tool, but also as a regulatory technique. I think that emotions are colorful. Mm. You know, we can typically say like, okay, what color does your anger feel? And it's, you know, usually some kind of red or orange. What color does your happiness feel? It's usually some kind of yellow or bright other hue. Um, And there's this desire to only have the bright colors. But painters don't only paint with bright colors. And your life is meant to be much more of a masterpiece. We have to be willing to use darker shades. And they're so rich, you know, mahogany and dark navy blue and rich forest green, you know, honey mustard. All of those colors are not bright, but they give depth and they give range. And so that's what we're actually doing when we learn to be with all of those feelings. We're adding colors to our palette we gain range as an artist in our life.
0: Mm, What you said, depth, that's it. That's the word Mm -hmm. like that. I feel like that's when we get to go deep and truly experience life more than just like surface level living. There's so much more.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had a mentor once tell me that everyone wants to, you know, expand their spectrum of feeling on the bright side, on the positive side. And if our range is, you know, from dark dark to light, we all want to stay on the light. But if your range is, you know, almost reminds me of the, I caught a fish this big. And then I caught a fish this big. I caught a fish this big kind of story. We all start with, you know, our little minnow of experience of emotion and we all want the positive bright side, but we actually don't grow our range. We don't expand our window unless we are willing to expand our depth real healing can happen in the dark and that's scary but again when we can expand that range when we can drop into the darkness then our our spectrum widens in reciprocation we don't get ultimate bliss ultimate joy without also understanding what ultimate loss and grief is like
0: oh my gosh mic drop that was amazing (laughs) (laughs) i'm like wow oh stephanie i can't thank you enough this was a beautiful conversation i really appreciate you coming on if there are any resources that you could think of um we will put them in the show notes so that the listeners can um just kind of start dabbling into this work easing their way Mm -hmm. into this work but in the meantime where can we keep up with you um what do you have going on in practice yeah
1: Absolutely. So, I have a team and we work with clients one on one. Um, We are all somatically oriented, and everyone's got their own special individualized trainings. But, you know, the overarching goal of the Stephanie Somatics group is to, you know, heal from the body up. Um, So, we work with folks one on one. We've got some groups that will be, you know, coming out in probably late spring. Mm -hmm. um, And we have a 30 day class that will drop actually this coming Monday on um, March 28th, yay, which is so exciting and uh, um, is really, wow, is really like this, this like loving gift that I'm creating in particular for the clients that I have seen in my life where I want to be able to support them every single day, but from an energetic place, I can't quite do that. Um, and this 30-day course is, you know, really an ode to, the, to that, to this desire to be with and support them. And so um, that course is jam-packed with material. I mean, there's so much in there that is really the wisdom that I offer in one-on-one sessions, but you don't have to wait to find time in my schedule to meet, you know, with this course, you can do this on your own time over the course of that 30 days. And my favorite part about it is you'll always have access to it. So if you go through, you know, half of it and have to take a break, you can always come back and start over again, or, you know, redo the course as many times as you need, because sometimes we have to hear that material more than once.
0: Yeah. And I think that's when it really integrates too, is when we repeatedly continue to listen to those things. So that's awesome. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I will everything in the show notes, but thank you again for coming on. Yes.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure
0: until next time guys. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. If the episode resonated with you, feel free to share it with a friend and give the podcast a five-star review and rating as this allows us to grow and continue having incredible guests on the show. Thank you so much for your support until next time.